Hello and welcome back to Holding Space Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Cassidy. It's been a while since I shared a new episode and I'm so glad that you're here today listening. As of today, when I'm recording this, I'm 35 weeks pregnant, so it'll most likely be the last episode for a period of time while we give birth to our third baby and adjust in our postpartum period. Hopefully I'll be back at the end of 2020 or beginning of 2021. Before I have this baby, before I take a little podcast break, I am so honored to have on the podcast today, Dr. Angel Monfort. Dr. Angel is a psychologist, and in today's episode, we're talking about race. We're exploring the impact of racism on mental health, relationships. We're talking about how we can talk to our children about race. We're exploring the impact of racism in the peripartum wellness world. Dr. Angel is sharing resources and ways that we can start taking steps. Now, today, I am really hoping that if you are a white holding space podcast listener, that you stick around for this conversation. If you're a provider, if you are a person of color, that you stick around for this conversation. Dr. Angel and I explore right off the bat why this conversation is relevant to everybody. All right, holding space podcast listeners, are you ready for this? Thank you to Dr. Angel for being here. I'm so excited to share her wisdom and resources and knowledge with all of you. So let's get to the conversation. You're listening to Holding Space Podcast with Dr. Cassidy Freitas, licensed marriage and family therapist. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. Now, let's jump in. Dr. Angel, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me today. I've really enjoyed connecting with you over the past couple weeks and months um, as you and I have built our professional relationship with each other. And I was so honored when you reached out and said, hey, can we have this conversation? I'm so excited to be sharing this conversation with the podcast listeners today. Thank you, Dr. Angel, for being here. Oh, thank you so much, Cassie, for having me. I really do um, appreciate sort of this forum and being able to have this conversation today. So thank you. So can you start us off with a little bit of context and sharing a little bit about your background and how you came to do the work that you do? Sure. So I am a licensed clinical psychologist. Um, I initially, so I went to undergrad at the University of Florida and then up to New Jersey um, at Rutgers University to finish my doctorate up. Um, I worked primarily within the Department of Veterans Affairs and always with a focus in women's health, um, either in the general women's clinic or working specifically um, on a military sexual trauma unit. And then about a year ago, transitioned into private practice. And so now I own a private practice here in the Tampa area where I specialize in perinatal mental health. Um, and I'm loving that so far. Mm-hmm. I, let's see, I have four little ones. Um, yeah, you're busy. <laughs> I'm super busy, um, <laughs> especially lately when everybody's sort of here at the house um, oh together. God. So um, I do, I have four little ones. Um, I have, let's see, my husband and I have been married for, it'll be 11 years on Saturday. 
Oh, congratulations. That's huge. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, so yeah, right now just kind of doing what I think a lot of providers are doing and um, navigating all the transitions into moving my practice exclusively online to be able to meet the needs of my clients, but then also the, the needs at home. Yep. Yes, yes, that's definitely it. And so for anyone who's listening to this episode in the future, we are in the midst of the coronavirus global pandemic right now. So we are, as clinicians and as parents, trying to navigate all the things while being at home, um, sheltering at home. And so I know that you and I have have talked quite a bit about that together over the last few weeks of how we're, how we're both navigating that professionally and personally. Um, and so I know how busy you are and even more reason why I'm so grateful that we're able to have this time together with each other today having this conversation. And so what we were going to talk about today was we're going to talk about race-based stress the impact that it can have on our mental health, um, how this shows up when it comes to being a mother, uh, mothering black children, um, the unique experience and period of pregnancy and postpartum, since I know that that is your specialty and I know a lot of um, the podcast listeners are um, pregnant or new moms. Um, and But before we get to all of that, I want to ask you this question of if somebody is listening to this and they hear, oh, okay, they're talking about race and mothering black children and what this means for um, black mothers and black, you know, expecting and, and postpartum moms and the impact that all this um, and race-based stress can have on mental health and functioning and their relationships and their experiences. But I want to ask you this, if somebody's listening right now, a white mom or a white listener is listening right now, is this conversation about them too? Like, should they, should they be a witness to the conversation that you and I are about to have? I want to, I want to hear from you if we can enlist the white listeners right now, like why should they stick around for this conversation? Oh, I love that question. Um, and absolutely, I think that they should stick around for this conversation because although some of what we'll talk about, like you mentioned, is specifically around um, some of the some of the challenges that black women face, I know just from my own personal experience, a lot of my colleagues that I work with um, are not black women. And so let's say if you're a therapist or if you are um, just a helper in a healing profession, this is going to be helpful to help you help your clients a little bit better and to kind of have a wider lens of what they might be going through. But then I think also just for um, any of us who are friends, you know, family, supporters, allies, advocates, um, it is helpful to, I think it's always helpful to sort of have a little bit more knowledge about what those around you may be going through so that you can step up and so that you can help. And um, I'm hoping too, that we can speak to that a little bit more about how, you know, if you're not um, someone of color, how do you then fit in here and what can you do? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Because I, I think that, um, you know, sometimes in these conversations, they don't think, you know, it's, one of the things that comes with white privilege is you don't having to think about race every day. I don't I wake up and I look in the mirror and I see I see my gender, I see a woman, but I don't see 
race, right? That's one of the things that can come with white privilege. And so I want (laughs) to make sure that we're kind of clarifying that if somebody is listening and they are white, is this a conversation that is something that's important for them to be listening to as well? So I appreciate appreciate you sharing all of that. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the impact of race-based stress, the impact that it can have on mental health, um, self-esteem, relationships. Can you speak a little to that? Sure. So when you say um, race-based stressors, this is kind of like uh, the intense psychological and emotional response to encounters of racism or racial discrimination. And what we know through research is that the psychological responses actually share some of the same features of a traumatic event. So some of the um, hypervigilance, maybe being a little bit more jumpy or startled, being um, distressed, depressed, having nightmares or intrusive thoughts about some of the things that have either happened to you directly or maybe that have happened um, to others that you've learned about vicariously or that you've seen um, certainly as recently as, you know, we've talked about some of the poli- some of the police brutality in the news, yeah. that can even contribute to sort of a collective experience um, of trauma. And it can lead to mental health symptoms that then are a result of that. And there's a term um, that was coined by Dr. Arlene Geronimus in the early 90s, this term weathering, that is kind of mm-hmm. this negative, the negative impact of long-term exposure to stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline and and the hormones that get kicked up when we are in fight or flight mode or when there's a perceived threat or danger. And what you found is that chronic exposure, chronic repeated exposure to that level of hormone fluctuation over time can actually cause different health vulnerabilities and can lead to early onset in certain chronic diseases like hypertension, diabetes, Mm -hmm. and even mental health concerns. So although certainly as we know, I think anyone would understand that experiencing racism is stressful, experiencing it to the degree at which many black people experience it actually can have a cumulative effect on your physical Mm -hmm. and or mental health. Yeah. And speaking, you know, you and I meant, we mentioned earlier that we're recording this in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and we're seeing the health disparities, right, that are mm-hmm. amongst the Black community right now and how, um, you know, because of some of these, you know, other conditions that you mentioned, diabetes, hypertension, um, and just the chronic stress and how much more vulnerable these populations are to this virus. And, you know, when, so during this time, as you mentioned, um, the police brutality that's always been happening, but now is being more publicly seen because it's being recorded, um, you know, and is showing up on media more often now because of that. Um, And I think that when with everything that was happening um, with the killing of George Floyd and, um, you know, I've, I found myself having a difficult time sleeping. Um, I found myself feeling just more exhausted and tired and stressed. And this was just what I found myself reflecting on. And, and I kind of talked about this with, with some people in, in my life is, I this is this is just a drop, right, mm-hmm. in the experience mm-hmm. of um, 
the Black community that, like you said, has been weathering this 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 burden and this stress for so long. Um, yeah. And I mean, I the impact that I mean, I wasn't feeling well, and like the if that was happening chronically, I mean, if, I can't even imagine the impact. And and that's the thing is, as I cannot imagine it because I haven't had to imagine it, right, or experience it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just getting a small little dose of it because I was, I was throwing myself into the experience of of what it might be like to be thinking about, um, am, am I safe with the people that are supposed to be keeping me safe, right? right. Such as the police, um, and those sort of things, and and witnessing um, the violence and brutality and um, and pain of of the black community. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's there's there's obviously a, a really big relationship there between the chronic stress of racism and experiencing racism and and health and mental health. What about relationships? So that and it kind of um, related to what you just shared that it, when there's this sort of dissonance between what's what I knew to be safe or what sort of in my mind I could expect to be safe and it's not, it can kind of impact our identity. And you can imagine then that that can impact the relationships that we have um, and how we view ourselves in the relationship. So I think that that's a piece to, you know, our self-esteem, our identity. We bring that to the relationships, you know, in our lives. Um, but then also that sometimes there can sort of be, let's say within groups, like a social cost of if I bring these things up, these things, for example, you know, when we see George Floyd, um, when we see Breonna Taylor and we see these different events that are contributing to a collective trauma, like you said, it's impacting, you know, if you're able to either, if you're able to sort of, um, access your own empathy around this situation is going to bother you. And so then of course, normally we would talk to our friends about the things that bother us. And what I've seen, um, in my own life and in some of my clients is that that can create this sense of strain if the experience that you're having is different than your friend's experience or different maybe than your partner's experience and the way that they're conceptualizing it. So it can be kind of a polarizing topic when it's brought up if there are differing opinions around it. So I've seen a lot of people on social media kind of talking about losing friends during this time. Um, or having to have very difficult conversations with friends, family, coworkers, people you've had relationships with, and perhaps the subject of race just has not really been directly addressed within the context of your relationship. Right. So it can really put, you know, quite the strain there. Oh, absolutely. And and uh, speaking of relationships, I think this kind of lends itself to, you know, the relationship that you have or that we can have with our children, right? Um, And so there's, I want to speak to or give you space to kind of speak to the unique experience of mothering Black children. Um, And we can also maybe explore, you know, the experience of talking to our children about race, um, because this is something that, um, you know, I've I've, tr- I've, I have made my efforts to speak to my children about race before all of this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but right now they're seeing, they're seeing it on the news. Um, you know, they're, we're, we're having a lot more of these kind of conversations and it's, um, it's interesting to, 
to, to try to do this well, you know, um, with, with my kids. And so I'd love to hear first, just, um, to give you space to kind of speak to the, the impact and experience of, of mothering black children. Um, and, and what are some of the unique experiences of that, um, you know, that you would like to speak to? Okay, absolutely. Well, first, I think that it's so great that you're having these conversations, you know, with your children. Um, and it's not easy, as you know. Mm. I think that in terms of mothering, and there, um, there have been some a lot more information out there lately, which I appreciate about some of the nuanced challenges in, or just some of the nuances, period, to being um, a black mother or mothering a black child. And that, that what you mentioned, sort of the talk, when do I have this talk? When do I um, express to them and explain to them some of what goes on in the world um, regarding racism, but also just right now, you know, in real time, but then also some of the historical background. And we know that they'll get some of that in school, um, which is great, but particularly in the case of um, mothering black children, they're going to get that probably much sooner than they actually start getting it in school. And right. so not really having, um, it's sort of like not really having a lot of leeway in terms of when I bring this up and wanting to not let the world be the one who teaches them what racism mm. is, is yeah. such a fine line because also we want to preserve their innocence and we want to have them be kids as long as they can. Um, I know even myself just kind of, you know, it, that was tricky for me. And it was with my second daughter. She was three when her childhood friend said, I can't, pl- I don't want to play with you anymore because you have brown skin. And mm-hmm. I was not ready for that yet. They had just learned their primary colors. So I really, really was not ready yeah. for this child to say that. And for me to have to try to explain to a three-year-old what she meant by that and and why, and why she feels bad and kind of like validate the way she's feeling. Um, thankfully their school was very, um, supportive and inclusive and they immediately kind of brought us in and tried to diversify their library and have a talk with the parents. And so it was, um, it was kind of a reparative situation, right? But I know that a lot of times that that's not the case. So there's kind of this, we growing up, I always kind of we always hear about like the talk in terms of where do babies come from and like the birds and the bees and those kinds of things. <laughs> now it's kind of like, in addition to those talks that are difficult also, I have to figure out when I'm going to explain um, race and racism and prejudice and these things to my child. So that's a stressor that kind of can insert itself in motherhood for sure. Yeah. Um, worrying in general, worrying about whether or not your child is going to be treated differently because of the color of their skin or whether that's, you know, I I think that a lot of moms in particular listening to George Floyd call out for his mom, you kind Mm -hmm. of, it really pulled at us so deeply that that could, you know, how would I react if that were my child? Um, and kind of like constantly wanting to protect them and to build them up to make sure that they appreciate their skin tone, their hair texture, um, wanting them to be quote unquote, well-kept to look as though I'm definitely taking good care of them to look as though they do not meet any of the stereotypes that might be out there. 
mm-hmm. um, provides kind of an additional pressure because I think I can kind of speak generally in terms of some of the things that I hear from moms. Sometimes it's hard, you know, they get the ketchup stains and they've got syrup on their shirt and you're just trying to get everybody together for a family photo. It's difficult in general to sort of like make sure um, that things are lined up the way we want them to as moms. But then there's also this additional pressure um, that's for, for some, and I want to you know, make that clear that that's also not the case for every single black mom out there. Right. Of course. But just that kind of some of the things um, that I've read and that I've heard and that I've experienced are sort of wanting to make sure that I do everything in my power to fight against some of the stereotypes that might, that my child might encounter. As you were naming some of those stressors, some of those things that take up space in your mind and in your heart about your children um, and as a mother, I was reflecting on, are, are these ever things that, I, that take up space for me, mm-hmm. right, that I find myself stressing about? And, and no, I mean, and maybe in some degree, but, but no, not in the same way that it's taking up space in your heart and in your mind. Um, and there are already so many things that I find myself worrying about sure. and staying up late thinking about. Um, but just all of those additional additional stressors that you named. Um, and, you know, I think that I know for a while there was sort of this in parenting, this sort of idea of um, – of being colorblind and teaching your children that race, you know, to not see color, to not see the color of another person's skin. Mm. And, and I think the intent there initially was to address racism. Um, but what it actually inevitably did was erased the, um, the honoring and experience of the unique experiences of being black or of being a person of color. Um, and sort of like allowed people to kind of turn a blind eye to to the injustice, the racial injustices that still exist in in our world and in our society. And so, you know, one of the things, just an example of um, an opportunity that recently came up to kind of talk to my daughter about race. Uh, we were watching um, we were watching a, a movie, and it was you know, a movie where the main character was blonde and, and white, um, female. And, you know, my daughter's like, my daughter who is, uh, she's half Portuguese and, um, half Mexican, um, or quarter Mexican. I'm half Mexican. And she asked, you know, what, um, why are there never like brunettes? Like why is the main character of these movies never have brown hair? like me. Um, and I was like, you know, that's interesting. Let's think about that for a second. And we kind of explored and looked at some of the different movies and she, she offered up a few examples. Um, and then we actually ended up having a conversation about how, um, more often than not in some of these shows and movies, the main character is actually male, um, Mm -hmm. or rescuing the female. Um, and then I asked her, you know, I, you're you're kind of noticing that you're you don't see the main character in these books or these movies or shows that looks like you. Um, and what about like 
what about if, you know, what about somebody who has darker skin color than you do? Do you, do you think that that's something that you see um, in terms of like a main character in a book or a movie? And she like thought about it and she's like, no. And in fact, she offered a few examples where like the, the villain has like darker, um, uh, darker features, Mm -hmm. right? And, and we talked a little bit about what that might mean um, for, you know, like she's noticing she's not seeing characters that look exactly like her, her features, um, but what it might, what the experience might be like for her friends who, who are, um, who are, who have darker skin tone and what that experience might actually be like for them to even have less representation of themselves, yeah. you know, in, in these children's books and movies and, and shows, Um and, and, and even beyond that, we were walking, you know, the other day at um, a, a local park that has a lot of statues here in San Diego. And she was pointing out how the statues were these like men with like, she's like, they have, why, why are they all like big and strong with six packs? You know? <laughs> I love her <laughs> question. I know. She's got great questions. She's my best. She's my best teacher. Um, and I, I was like, I know. I was like, I don't know, Riley. Um, but then. I, but then I thought to ask her also, I was like, but have you ever noticed that um, you never see any statues of anybody who's like in a wheelchair or like um, disabled in some way? Like these are all very able-bodied, mm-hmm. strong, mostly men mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and mostly white men um, in these these statues. And it was just, it was a simple conversation. Um, and I, I hope it's not the end of it, right? Like there's so much more to talk about. But then my son, who's younger than her, um, and, you know, is, has some awareness of what's been going on, um, lately in the news. And he, we were driving the other day and he kind of out of nowhere said, mom, I'm really glad that I'm not black. Mm. And I was like, oof, like there was a part of me that wanted to like, um, uh, jump in and like, I don't know. And, 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 and be like, no, there's no, sh- there's no shame in being, in being and having darker skin. And like, but then, but I had to sort of take a step back and recognize that like the way that he's making sense of the world right now mm-hmm. is that being black might mean not being safe. And, you know, cause in my mind, I'm like, gosh, I hope he doesn't say, say anything to his black friends that like, I'm glad I'm not black like mm-hmm. you, or, you know, that that's kind of where my mind goes. Um, but I slow down and I recognize that like he's he's starting to understand that like the color of your skin can sometimes reflect whether you're safe or not or how you might be treated. And so we ended up, have you know, just being curious, like, well, what, well, can you tell me more about why? Why is that something that you feel? And um, and then tried to build empathy about around putting him in the shoes of his friends who were born with darker skin tone, right? Which mm-hmm. is just skin tone, but has all these implications. Um, and so, yeah, I, I appreciate you kind of naming some of these things because these are things that I don't find myself, again, having to think about every day. Right. Um, but I want, I want my children to, to be aware that of their own sort of privilege, mm-hmm. right? That which is not earned, um, and and this and this whole idea around white white privilege, gosh. Since I've been um, sharing more on social media about um, you know my own thoughts around the racial injustices that have been witnessed and that I that are 
the events of the current day, but also that have been always happening. Um, I've been getting so many DMs from people, from white women mostly, who are saying things like, why should I be ashamed that I'm white? And like, Mm -hmm. why, like, not not really sort of buying into this idea of white privilege and not seeing it. Um, And me and having me speak to it is is leaving them feeling a sense of like, you're telling me I should feel guilty or ashamed of being white. And I'm curious. um, I mean, I, I can share how I've been responding to that, but I'm curious um, to hear some of your thoughts on that. Cause I think that when we start talking about privilege and these sort of things, there can be some defensiveness that can show up around that. Oh yeah. You know, I, so even in the, in terms of, um, what your son was sharing with you, I think that that's such, um, an indicator that it's never, it's, it's, it's rarely too, too early to start talking to them because they're noticing, you know, and they're picking up on some of the things around them. And so the empathy that he would have had to access to be able to say that to you, um, I think is actually, is sort of a good thing overall, right? That he's, he's seeing this and he's realizing that. And what's interesting, kind of the converse of that is having, I know at least with, with some of my children have come to me to say, why, why would God make me black if, if black people have to deal Mm. with all of these things? Right. And so both, you know, at at young ages, they're realizing that there are differences. So I think initially you asked, um, what is sort of the harm in, um, being colorblind or, or kind of, um, asserting Mm. that you're colorblind. And the, the problem is that, that, doesn't quite match up with reality. And so if right. you're saying that, then it means that it, it invalidates the experience of someone else like your son or my daughter, who's realizing, yes, there is something different here. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, I think that having those discussions, just like you did and kind of asking more questions, figuring out, um, where they're coming from with it and being able to respond with empathy and validation and curiosity, um, you know, that's age appropriate for them is really important. Um, and so I'll say that for that. And then I know that there are also some resources around how to talk with your children, um, up specifically about race. Dr. Anne Louise Lockhart, she has some great kind of, um, guidance for that as well as Dr. Jasmine. Yes. The mom psychologist, she also has done a lot around how do you sit down and have these discussions with your children? Um, but then also as that kind of melts into privilege a little bit, that what I think the misconception around privilege is, is that somehow it's something to be um, ashamed of or something to feel guilty for. And realistically, it's, it's, it's a special benefit, advantage, immunity that's granted only to a particular group. But it, the word there for me that's key is it's granted. It's something that society grants you. It's not something that you do purposefully. You don't walk around sort of like privileging on people. Um, it's just like, it's innate. You have it um, yeah. through no fault yeah. of your own. It's just kind of, um, it's a descriptive word. And white privilege also is not the only type of privilege. So I have found that when I've been um, asked that same question, because I've also gotten a lot of that feedback, um, is to kind of explain that it's also, there are lots of kinds of privilege. You know, when we talk about like 
body positivity. Um, there is thin privilege. That's a thing. Um, yes. you know, there are certain privileges, um, because you, because you have an education, there are certain privileges because you live in America. Um, these are things that we were, ju- you were just born into and there's nothing to be shameful about. Yes. And I still, um, I I can still reflect on my own experience of really in, and this was in a a particular class that I took during my um, doctoral program where I, this was a a class about race and privilege and power, um, especially in the context of our healthcare system specifically. Mm -hmm. And we had projects and assignments where we had to really reflect on our own experiences of privilege and our experiences of oppression. And it was in, it was, it was messy work, you know, like messy work of having to kind of face some of the things that I do, that I, I, I do have privilege on that I was granted that I didn't earn. Um, and to like face some of my own kind of defensiveness or fragility around it because I think that in that first I I really wanted to make sure that I was convincing everyone that I'm not racist which was not helpful because <laughs> that was ignoring sort of the internalized racism and sexism and all the other you know the isms that we all face because it's just like the air that we breathe in, yes. right? Um, and so there was like I had to face some of that fragility and defensiveness around it. And and I think that part of what can show up in that is that like, you know, but I've also experienced pain and hardship and and people feel like that's not being – some people may feel like that's not being honored when you say that I have this privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that what I hear you speaking to is that it's important for us to – honor and acknowledge our granted privileges that but we can also hold space for the intersectionality of our identity and experiences right like I hold a lot of privilege um, because of the color of my skin Um, and I've also experienced I've also experienced oppression as a Mm -hmm. woman Mm -hmm. Um, and even though I'm a woman I still have internalized sexism right and I can still be sexist (laughs) like I and so I think that it's I think the the complexity of all of this um, is something that's important to honor um, while also being able to notice when we come up against some of our own defensiveness and like um, fragility or guilt around it or um, and and I think that one of the things that I that I've I've kind of come to to work through myself is that when I when I just sit in the guilt right the guilt of the ways in which I've messed up or the ways in which I have um, not, been an ally or shown up in in a way that is um, supportive of you know my black colleagues and the black community. Um, when I when I when I feel guilt around these things, guilt doesn't help me move to action. You right. know, and so I think that what guilt can show me is that there's something that I value here that I'm not feeling in alignment with. And so um, may it's whether it's equality or justice, um, that there's something here that I'm not aligned in alignment with in that moment. And so I need to make a shift so that I can be in alignment with mm-hmm. that. 
And then maybe from that space, right, um, that may be a better space to then actually move to action. Um, I don't want to take action just from guilt. I want to take action from from something that is that I deeply value, that I know is right. Right. Um, and that sometimes the privilege I've been granted can can actually give me more power and space to do that, mm-hmm. right? Um it, you know, and so I think that yeah, it's it's been interesting to face. It's always in the DMs, you yes. know, like to face a lot of um, comments or people kind of saying, you know, um, all lives matter. Um, you know, why should I feel guilty for being white? Um, and and you know, at first wanting to <laughs> respond in ways that might not be productive, and and you know, sometimes in DMs, it's never going to be that right. productive because. Really, really where this work happens is in connection, is in um, leaning into someone's experience, is in exploring someone's context and the nuance of their experiences, um, and through that kind of connection, which is hard to create through a direct message on social media. Um, But I I try to take from those experiences um, what I can learn. And reflect on where I've been at in my own my own place in, in having some of those experiences of guilt or defensiveness and and translate it into some of the relationships that I can have an impact on, such as um, raising my children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because as you say that, I'm kind of thinking in my mind, like, uh, with privilege comes responsibility. And so it's hard to move to that responsibility piece of, like you said, the action. What am I going to do? Um, how am I going to, how am I going to stand? How am I going to advocate? And if you're in a place of guilt and shame, it sort of in some ways becomes more about that than about the actual injustice that's happening. And that's where it, that's where the privilege becomes problematic. Not necessarily that it exists, but it's just kind of like, what are you going to do with it once you've acknowledged that it's there? Mm. Yes. Okay. So gosh. Okay. So I want, I I definitely want to get to like, what are, like, what is the action? Like, what are the resources? Mm -hmm. Right. Because this, this work isn't going to, you know, take place just by this one conversation or just by listening to this one episode, right? There's, this is lifelong work. And so I want to, I want to get to those resources um, in, in a little bit here, but I do want to speak to, because of the audience that I know that potentially can show up in listening to this episode, um, the unique period of peripartum, which is pregnancy and postpartum. Yes. Can you speak to some of the disparities and unique stressors that um, that a person of color, or a mother of color, or a partner of color may experience? Um, and yeah, if you could just kind of speak to the relationship between race and birthing <laughs> justice mm-hmm. and injustices. Mm-hmm. Um, I know maternal mortality is is something here that we'd want to touch on as well. Yes, certainly. Um, I would I would start there really that what we know about maternal mortality is that black women are two to three times more likely um, to die during childbirth or um, afterwards related to childbirth and complications, and that that rate increases after the age of thirty. And that's kind of like a large disparity right now between black women and white women. And certainly there are um, causes related to that, like hypertension, preeclampsia, um, 
But when, when the studies have been done to sort of separate out even pre-existing conditions, socioeconomic status, poverty level, um, you know, education level, what they found is that these disparities still remain. And so it kind of leads to, so then why? Like why, you know, in 2020, are there such disparities around maternal mortality? And the short answer to that is systemic racism and implicit bias and the way that that impacts the kind of um, medical care that women are getting. So a lot of times, and when I say implicit bias, just kind of meaning like the the unconscious attribution of certain qualities to members of a certain group. And so in terms of black women, sometimes there's an implicit bias that they are better able to withstand higher levels of pain. And so they're offered pain medication um, at a lower rate. Um, Doctors are often, in some of the studies, it's been found that doctors are often a little bit more um, verbally dominant and maybe less patient-centered. And it may be less likely that these patients are believed when they say, hey, something's not right. I think in the media, kind of the most top of mind example is with Serena Williams and what she went through during her um, postpartum journey. And so here's, you know, this celebrity, this public figure, um, you know, where socioeconomic status is not an issue. All these things are, you know, that's not an issue, but she's saying something and she's not being listened to. She's being dismissed. Um, And this is something that happens a lot, but sort of got a little bit more, more notoriety with her case in particular. And there's kind of a lot of ideas about why exactly that's happening. And, you know, I know that research and, um, there are a lot of efforts in trying to figure it out and trying to fix it and kind of like, um, change things. But at least right now, it's extremely important for, black women to know that these disparities exist and to be able to then advocate for themselves that much harder. Um, I know sometimes when I mention the statistics, folks are like, oh, that's a downer. Um, And it is, but it's not to make um, women scared or anything like that. It's just sort of to have the knowledge that equips you that when you know something is not right, you're able to say, I know you're trying to rush me out of here, or I know you're trying to send me home, but I insist that I want, you know, maybe more testing done or I want, um, or I need a second opinion, or maybe I decide that, you know, this is not a good fit for me provider wise, being aware that these exist to you and that you're not being a difficult patient if you feel mm-hmm. your needs aren't being met and it, it is worth it to speak up about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, a separate topic, but kind of a similar thing where I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 34 weeks, almost 35 weeks pregnant. And it's, uh, you know, coronavirus, the numbers are like skyrocketing Mm -hmm. right now. Um, and I am afraid if I test positive, um, I've heard stories of mothers being separated from their children and, you know, I, I'm thinking for myself as I've been doing research about what my rights are and what I can advocate for and having that knowledge is power, yeah. right? So that I can say, no, I like, I, I don't want to be separated from my child and these are the reasons why or um, how to how to get that sort of support, um, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and how to also get answers so that I can, with my healthcare provider, make the right decision for everyone involved. Um, and 
one like one of the things that I that I consider then is from everything that you just shared if I was if I was black right and if I was also in you know tested positive and potentially going to have to be separated from my child um, or from my partner right like what that ex- like I, I'm worried about not having a voice but what that experience might be like just based on the implicit bias because of the color of my skin mm-hmm. and what like what would be the experience then of a mother in the room next to me, right? Who was also going through the exact same experience. Um, and I think just reflecting on, okay, this is something that I want and I'm scared that I'm not going to be heard. Um, but I am more likely to be heard and I've had more experiences of being heard. So therefore maybe some more confidence that it's going to, that I will be heard in my request exactly. um, than, than maybe the mom next door um, uh, who is a mother of color. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that also what you're sharing there is so important because um, kind of weaving it back to what we talked about at the very beginning, if you are a provider, you know, um, who's, a provider who's not of color and you're treating someone who is being able to educate yourselves in ways to be able to meet their needs and help them to feel comfortable and help them to feel heard and validated. Um, and even if you are someone who typically does a great job at that, it can be helpful to know, just like you mentioned here that your client may be coming in with experiences, um, with multiple experience of maybe not being listened to, um, or not being taken seriously. And so they may kind of come in a a little bit with kind of a wall up or a difficulty trusting you. And so even being aware that, okay, this is something that might present with this client and let me be mindful of that as I'm talking to them. Let me make sure that they feel safe and they feel um, that they can trust me in this space. Right. Oh, I'm just thinking of how many times potentially that is what that is how somebody shows up, mm-hmm. right? From mm-hmm. all of this, this historical context and experiences, um, and then is automatically sort of labeled potentially um, as uh, non-compliant, right? Or difficult. difficult. Yes, or, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And not to say that that excuses um, right. everything, right? Um, but just that it's something for us to keep kind of like in our toolbox as clinicians also is that this is, this is one of the things that could be going on. Hmm. All right. So Dr. Angel, what are, because again, like, like we said, like I said, like we said, like this is, this is lifelong work. Um, One podcast episode, one book, one conversation isn't, isn't enough, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is something that is we're continuously going to need to to continue to do the work for the long haul. So, what are some of the resources that you would that you would name that any anybody who's listening um, might want to access? Uh, a great question. Okay, so um, I certainly share materials on my page as well, and I'll continue doing that as I become more aware of resources. Um, but Rachel Cargill um, studies studies. Um, race-related issues and kind of has developed a course called The Great Unlearn that um, I think that you mentioned as well before. Um, And I'll give you the link to that, of course. And then um, Austin Channing Brown, also an author Mm -hmm. with some great stuff, has a web series um, show called The Next Question where she goes into a lot of these topics as well to really break them down if you're needing kind of just more context and more information about some of what we've talked about here. 
Um, Black Mamas Matter Alliance is specifically um, devoted to birthing justice and reproductive um, justice, and they speak a lot more about, go into a lot more detail about the maternal mortality disparities that we talked about today. Um, in terms of figuring out how it is that you want to get involved, there are certainly organizations like Until Freedom um, and Color of Change where you can directly get involved with um, advocacy and activism. Um, and then, of course, sort of very close to my heart is then the mental health resources that are out there um, for black women, one of them being Therapy for Black Girls, um, where you can kind of an online directory and find therapists who are culturally competent and devoted to doing this work. Uh, and then also the Loveland Foundation, um, which partners with a lot of different um, practices in terms of offering um, affordable mental health care. I believe it's actually free for a certain number of sessions, mental health care um, for women of color. So I'm sure there's more that I'm not thinking of. That I'll make sure that I get to you. Yeah. And I'll be sure to include all of these in the show notes with direct links. Um, one that has um, been a huge resource for me when it comes to parenting is the Conscious Kid. Yes. Um, and they do a lot of parenting and education um, through through a critical race lens um, and just have a ton of resources. You can find them on social media. But I wonder if you could speak a little more to just sort of like, okay, what do we do with all this information um, in terms of taking actually taking action? Yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, for me, it comes back to the values. And this is what I always kind of direct my clients back to you. And you touched on that earlier as well. But getting very clear before even deciding what kind of action you want to take on um, what my values are in this moment. And what kind of person do I want to be? You know, asking yourself if no one was around to see what I'm doing, if nobody was judging me um, or scrutinizing me, what actions would I take? Um, and then asking, is that different than what I'm doing now? Maybe you're already walking in your values. And so that's great. Um, another question that can kind of help with that is thinking about the future. So either years from now, or even after I pass on, what words do I want my loved ones to use to describe me? You know, how do I want to be able to tell my kids later how I showed up in this moment? And really thinking about that's what that is for you, which is different than what it may be for your friend, for your family, for even your partner. Um, just kind of asking what aligns with my values and then choosing an action that's consistent with that. Because if you don't, if you choose the action based on what you think you should do or what other people are doing, it's not going to feel right. You're going to feel kind of like off center. So if you use your values as your central compass in that way, it'll help you wade through um, all of the resources and all of the possibilities and decide on what feels true to you. Mm, I love that. And would you also say that I think sometimes people can feel overwhelmed with like how much work there is to be done and how much mm -hmm. they can potentially be doing? Um, I've heard some people suggest like, okay, pick one thing, like pick one book, start there, like read that book, have conversations with people about what you read. Um, and then from there, like choose the next thing, right? Um, yes. I mean, is that sort of what you, a route that you would say could be, could be helpful? Yes. Yes. Because it, 
I think about Frozen because we're watching a lot of Frozen 2 over here. And she, she talks <laughs> yeah. about doing the next right thing. And <laughs> yeah. when she said it, I was like, oh, I like that. Um, because that's true in so many avenues. And this is one of them. You, you know, there's kind of a saying about resistance being a several lane highway and you pick your lane. And so you may be in the fast lane, zooming past and, and doing all kinds of stuff and implementing policy. Um, or you may be in another lane where you are right now having difficult conversations with friends and family and kind of like calling them into the work and, um, you know, advocating when you see microaggressions occurring. So I think that no action is too small when it comes to mm-hmm. getting involved and so if it's going to feel overwhelming, it may be something that as humans, we tend to then just avoid it altogether. So if you can break it down into more like baby steps and do the first thing, then that's going to empower you to do the next right thing and the next right thing. And so, yeah, I do think that it, if it starts off with a chapter in a book, that's that's enough and you build on that. All right. So as we're wrapping up here, Dr. Angel, you had shared yourself as a resource earlier. Where can people find you and follow your work? Okay, so my website is the Center for Maternal Mental Health. That's my practice, and it's www.cfmmh.com. And then I am often on Instagram, and my handle is at Dr. Angel Montfort. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I love kind of building community there and just having more of these discussions, um, usually in small doses through Instagram, um, to raise awareness. So, yeah. Well, Dr. Angel, I I can vouch that I love I love being connected to you and following your content and having you as a colleague but also now as a friend and I'm just so grateful for you in taking time to have this conversation with me um and sharing everything that you shared and I'm just so grateful. Thank you so much. Oh for for being here with me yes likewise dr cassidy i've really enjoyed it and i appreciate so much for you kind of opening and holding this space for us you've been listening to holding space podcast i hope you enjoyed the information that was shared in this episode if you did you might want to subscribe and be the first to hear about future episodes as soon as they air thank you so much for sharing this space with me have a great day